Hi, and welcome to the next episode of Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts here, Dana Osban, here with Ann Gordon. Today, we will be discussing Brachot Daf Yudzayim. Hi, thanks, Yardana. Um, today, I want to continue, actually, something that we began, or the daf began, on Brachot, at the very end of Brachot Yudzayim, where, and I, and I spoke about this yesterday, where we're talking about the respective tefillot that different members of Chazal said after their davening. And the Gemara goes through, I counted them up if I've counted correctly, there are 13 different statements made or prayers by different members of Chazal. I'm calling them members as if it's a club uh, because I don't have, they're not, you know, they're not actually signed into one group. Chazal. Um, and they each have, each of these 13 has a statement, a prayer that they would say, that they would recite after they finished their regular prayer. So this says to me many different things. First of all, let's consider the fact that these are people who did not live at the same time and they are not presented in chronological order. Rava and Rav and Reb Yehuda Hanasi are all in the mix. And they're not the only ones, of course. Reb Yochanan, Reb Lezer. And they each have something that they pray for. And if we line them up and compare the texts, we would find this one is focusing on on shalom, on peace. And this one is focusing on Torah, learning Torah, and this one is focusing on recovering from hate, from sin, and and it's not. Some of them are more complicated than that. It's not simple enough to say, "Oh, he's praying about this, and the other one's praying about that, and the other one's praying about the other thing." But each of them is coming to. I would say it. It feels to me to put their personal imprint on their own davening, on their own tefillah after the formal tefillah. I think it's important to remember that at this time, meaning in these several generations, several hundred years even, after the Chorban Abayat, after the destruction of the temple, there is not yet the rigorous, formal, uh, set prayer that we have nowadays in our Sidurim. We have different Nisra'ot, we have different liturgies between Ashkenaz and Sfarad and Edot and Mizrach and Chassidim, whoever, but we basically have the same format and the rest, you know, what the differences between each of those nuschaot is kind of, you know, icing on the cake, depending on which um, organiz- which group of, of uh, heritage you come from. But back in the day of Chazal, they, it wasn't so formal like that. They were beginning to have a fixed Shmon Esrei, right? We spoke before about how this was really the work uh, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zaka and Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Gamliel II, as you've described, was instrumental in in fixing tefillah, but it's still not um, established in the way that we come to think about it. Rav Amram Gaon is the author or the compiler of the first Sidur, which is from the 800s, the 800s, the 8th century. I'm not sure. I always, I say I have a disease, right? I always switch the century and the hundreds, but the 8th century there. And and that's several hundred years after even the latest of these folks, of these 13, were providing us with their statement of prayer. What this tells me is, it's a reminder, I would say, that even when we come to pray together, and I believe that that's what it means, that each of them, after the formal prayer that they would pray together with their congregation, with whoever was around them, because whatever communal prayer was becoming, it was in the works, then each of them would say their own private prayer. 
And to me, that's a lesson of, of remembering to, to put a personal imprint. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that the Gemara says that we should do this. I'm saying I can infer from the fact that each one of these um, rabbis did this. So, so we too should come to prayer and make sure that we, we imprint our personal um, focus, our personal desires, our personal tefillot after or as part of even the prayer that we have. Um, and I would say that the other thing that strikes me here is that it's presented as a regular thing that was done. Meaning, whatever prayer is being said by each one of these 13, the tefillot differ from one to the next, but it's presented as if they each said this one thing that they each said consistently. And there's something to be said for that also. They they had a calling card. Each one of them had a focus and a calling card of what was important and, and what they were striving for. And some of it is, you know, coming out of the environment that they were they were in where how close did they live in proximity to the korban abayit how far f- were they from the destruction of jerusalem and what are they focusing on if you're talking about sin if you're talking about peace if you're talking about more learning of torah again examples from what they've said and then it's very clear that as they come to bring themselves into the tefillah and bring themselves into the communication towards God, they have different focuses because they're living at different times and they have different things to say. And I feel like we too can do that. I would say also following this, the daf goes through, again, I counted, there's five statements by five different rabbis that they, not prayers, but things that they were wont to say. And like pitamim, like uh, proverbs of a kind, I don't mean literally from the book of Proverbs, but wise sayings that they were wont to say. So this brings me just to a methodological point about our daf, because, and a little bit from the previous daf, because this is very much a compilation. It's where we see, I don't want to say we see the seams from one generation to the next, but it's very carefully crafted that each generation, each statement by each Rav is put together one after another, after another, after another. They were not in conversation with each other, at least not for the most part, because they did not live in the same centuries. But they're brought here you know, between the 13 prayers and the five statements of things that these rabbis were wont to say as as messages of prayer and messages of statements of wisdom. And I think that when we when we want to understand, you know, who are we supposed to be and where are we supposed to go from this, on the one hand, we get the message to make to put our own personal stamp. And the other thing I would say is to to pay attention to what they're saying because it's presented there for us to have it as you know, com- compiled all together. It's been collated in a folder, as it were. Go look at those quotes. That's where you can get your inspiration. That's where you can remember these are wise statements by these uh, members, again, of Chazal. Right. And not only that, I think a lot of those tefillot that we see, you'll also recognize, like the one that Rev said is actually what Mabarchi Machodesh is. So I think to your point, Anne, that what we see a little bit on these pages is the evolution of tefillah, and that many of these individual prayers that were said by these rabbis later became incorporated into different parts of our actual formal tefillot. So it's sort of, that's another interesting thing that's to see on that page. Or they were, or they, or these prayers were already formal and they each had their favorite one that they would take. I, I don't know if we know which came first. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think we do know which one came first. I wanted to just sort of pay attention to two of the sort of, uh, uh, you know, sort of 
sayings that were said that I just wanted to point out and discuss a little bit. The first one is the one that's on Yudzayin Amud Aleph, uh, that is the saying of the Chachamim and Yavna. So we talked about Yavna in yesterday's podcast when we talked about Rebbe Gamliel II. And what's interesting, again, about the uh, Rabbanim and Yavna is they're essentially the first center of Torah that gets built out after the destruction of the Beit HaMidash uh, on the directive of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. And again, I've said it before, it's a Gemara in Gittin, where, you know, he says, right? He has this encounter with the Roman general. And instead of asking for Jerusalem to be saved, he says, no, we're just going to move everything to Yavna. And uh, we'll hopefully explore that later on, why that was um, and whose fault that actually was, which is a fascinating Gemara. Um, so here you have the who have to basically reestablish Torah um, and Judaism in a way that it has never been envisioned before, which is without a temple and not being in Jerusalem. And this is the following sort of saying that they have. Right, so they say, "Ani bria v'chaverai bria, ani melachti ba'ir v'hum melachto basada, ani mashkim l'melachti v'hum mashkim l'melachto." Kishem shu eno mit gader v'melachti, kach ani ani mit gader v'melachto. V'shama tomar ani marbe v'hum ma'it shaninu, echad marbe v'echad ha'mamit u'bilvachi kaben libo l'shamayim. So. The ind- and notice also this is said in the plural that this the the Rabbanan of Yavna would say, but this saying is written in Lashon Yachid. It's written as the individual, right? I who learn write Torah. I am God's creature, and my Chaverai, my counterpart, and most of the Mefarshim explain those are people who are not learning Torah, right? Presumably people who are working or doing other things in the economy. They are also God's creature. My work is in the city. And his work is in the field, right? Like that was an agricultural society, right? I rise up early for my work and he rises up early for his work. Just as he does not presume to perform my work, I do not presume to perform his work. So there's an acknowledgement here that's sort of like the person who learns Torah, his role is to learn Torah. And he would, and the person who does the field work and does the economy, that's his job. And each understands that they can't do the other person's job. Right. Lest you say that I do a lot of Torah study while he only engages in Torah study a little. Um, right. Again, this is how the Mepharshim understand that it has already been taught. And this is a uh, halacha that we know about Korbanos. And this is what they're quoting here, that one who brings a uh, like a large sacrifice, a large Korban versus one who brings a meager one. And what they mean by that is one person could maybe afford to bring a cow or, and then you may have somebody who could only afford to bring a flower korban, a korban mincha, right? The Torah teaches us that each of those has equal merit and that it ends by saying, right? As long as whatever they're doing, their heart is directed towards heaven. So this also ties into our whole discussion of Shema because that's exactly the kavana that one has to have when they recite Kriyat Shema. So I was very taken by that from all the other sayings that we sort of had taken by the fact that as much as we say it's Rabbanan, right, the rabbis, it's written in Lashon Yachid, it's one person saying it. And I almost wonder, was this like something that they reminded themselves and said every morning before they entered the Beit Midrash? Um, but it's just so beautiful because it's acknowledging that sort of at this inflection point, how I envision this, at least, that at this inflection of history where they see that so much of Judaism is changing, one, those Rabbanim could have had this sort of 
inflated sense of purpose saying like, oh, we are the ones who are going to save the people, right? We are the ones who are going to bring Judaism and Torah and totally change it the way it needs to be. And really what they're saying is, is no, my job is important and the person who works is important. And I would never presume to be able to do that person's job and they would never be able to presume to do my job. And both of those are important as long as we recognize that we're doing it l'shem shamayim, that we're both doing it to serve God. It strikes me that it's the same, um, it's a parallel language, but in a much more positive way than we have in the Hadron, right? The Hadron at the end of when you finish the Masachet or you finish all of Shas, as you know, as was just done a couple of weeks ago, right? They say, we run to learn Torah and they run right? That they run to nonsense things or, or empty things. And here, I think what you've said is very beautiful, that there's a purposefulness to what we do and there's a purposefulness to what they do. So the, it, it is reminiscent to me of the Hadran and yet in, with a much more positive approach. Right. And it's not just even that it's a purposefulness. It's even recognizing that like each one can't do the other person's job. Um, and so sort of valuing everybody's place. Um, the second one I want to get to is a statement by Abaye. So just to remind us a little bit who Abaye is, he is um, one of the, uh, he's an Amora, uh, fourth generation Amora. He lives in Babel. So just to keep in mind that he is, um, you know, he's living in the diaspora and he has the following thing to say, right? Leolam Yehe Adam Arum um, right, a person should always be uh, sort of a room, you know, literally sort of means like naked. But in other words, a person should really have fear, right? And then he quotes a pasuk here in Mishle, right, a soft answer turns away anger. And a person should basically always try to increase peace with his brothers with his relatives, with every person, and even with the non-Jew who is in the shuk. So that he will be loved above, meaning that God will value him, and that he will be pleasant or accepted below. And he will be acceptable to all of God's creatures. And I think here clearly when it says cholabriot, that means everybody, Jew or non-Jew. And I was so struck by this, that for a person who's living in the diaspora, that there's a real recognition, not just of how they're treating their Jewish neighbors, right? But even increasing, like the way that tefillah is worded, right? It starts with a chav, it, it's going from the inner circle to the outer circle, right? Your brother's kubai, right? Which could either mean your extended family or sort of your extended community, right? And then saying, uh, you know, kol adam, all people, ba'filu im hagoi bashok. Right. And then even the non-Jew who you would encounter in the marketplace and that that type of behavior is beloved by God above, but also what makes you endeared to people um, in this world as well. And, you know, this recognition of sort of like, where is the Jew in the diaspora and our choice to have to be pleasant to all people. And also that that's a real struggle. You know, I think he only says this because he recognizes it's not so easy to always be pleasant or to be you know, to, to be Marbeth Shalom, right? To increase peace with our family, within our community, with people who we meet who are strangers, whether they are a Jew or a non-Jew. Um, and again, I think this is one of these great examples where, you know, the fact that it's said by somebody, by an Amora in Babel, 
it has a little bit of a different meaning than if it was said by uh, somebody in uh, Eretz Yisrael. And I think that's why what the Rabbanan of Yavna says has to be understood under their historical context. So, you know, all of these answers sort of circle back to what you said at the beginning. Um, I think we really see sort of the power of unique prayer, that each one of us has the ability to sort of look around at the world around us, recognize what are the issues that we struggle with, that our community struggles with, and to pray based on those needs, and that those things may be very different from generation to generation. Our DAF discussion for the day. Thanks for listening. Until tomorrow, go and learn.